Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the NFL and what's going down there. We'll be talking about the NBA and what's happening in the association. We'll touch on some college football. We'll look into a little MLB, and then we'll have our best for last. Now, remember, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And don't forget to follow the Twitter page at JTime Sports. I repeat, at JTime Sports for all breaking news, coverage, and things of that nature. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, guys, and welcome in to this absolutely packed show, this Super Bowl show, this show that we have been waiting on for two weeks, really. I had to do my best to not talk a lot about the Super Bowl last week, but now Super Bowl Sunday has arrived upon us in just a couple of days. I am absolutely excited about this game, completely loaded, completely psyched, and we made it. First, I just want, before we even go into the game, I just want to thank everyone in the NFL, the players, the league, Commissioner Goodell, who gets a really bad rap a lot of time for no reason, uh, all the medical staffs, all the employees at the stadiums, the cleaning crews, all that for making this happen. Because a lot of guys, a lot of medical professionals saying there's no way you're going to get a football season in. There's no way you're going to play a college season. There's no way you're going to play a football season without going to the bubble. Because after we've seen a bubble in the NBA, we've seen it with hockey, medical professionals said, man, it's three and a half hours tackling, there's huddles, there's interactions all through the game on both sidelines, you know, no one is safe. It's not like the NBA where the 10th, 11th, 12th guy on the bench in the playoffs doesn't get off the bench and never interacts with anybody on the other team. In the NFL, you can have a scrimmage on the sideline. Now, the whole team is involved all in close proximity of each other. It could be a mass COVID spread event at one time. And so that was a lot of the concern, but we made it. And in two days, we will have the Chiefs, the AFC champion, and the NFC champion, Tampa Bay Bucks, on the same field in Raymond James Stadium, deciding who will be the Super Bowl 55 champion. So thank you, NFL, for that. But now, down to business. Enough of the pleasantries, enough of the niceties. Now it's down to business. This game is going to be amazing. When you look at the weapons on both sides, you can legitimately make an all-star team just from these two teams. And I will put it up against any all-star team you can create throughout the other 30 NFL franchises. When you look at weapons, you've got Antonio Brown. You've got Tyreek Hill. You've got Travis Kelsey. You've got Cameron Brake. You've got Gronk. You've got Mike Evans. You've got Scotty Miller. You've got Chris Godwin. When you look at the running back position, you got Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Le'Veon Bell, Ronald Jones, Leonard Fournette. You look at the quarterback position, obviously you've got Tom Brady. Obviously you've got Patrick Mahomes. You look at the coaching staffs, you've got Eric Bieniemy, Todd Bowles, Bruce Arians, Andy Reid. I mean, this thing is going to be amazing from top to bottom. There's talent all over the field. And we're not even talking about the defense with Shaq Barrett, JPP, Adamican Su, Vita Vea, Tyron Matthew, Chris Jones, Frank Clark, Rashad Breland, Carlton Davis, Jordan Whitehead, if he can go. It's a possibility he might not be able to go. And, of course, the standout rookie Antoine Winfield. We hadn't even talked about those Tampa Bay linebackers with Levante David and Devin White. Look, this talent-wise, this is what you wanted in a Super Bowl. 
after this long, arduous season, after this long, arduous year that was 2020, hey, 2021 ain't starting off the greatest either. We deserve, as a football community, to get this level of contest on the field, ready to go. Now, there is some weather concerns. Uh, there's a 70% chance, I think last I saw, that the weather was going to be a little rough before the game. Maybe not necessarily during it, but definitely before the game, there was a possibility of a good rainstorm. Now, it's Tampa, so a monsoon could just appear. But hopefully, the, the rain is light, if at all. That is the concern with a lot of the outside Super Bowls, which is why if you look at the recent years, they've been trying to move them up north into indoor stadiums. So we've had one cold weather Super Bowl. That was the New York Super Bowl. Uh, that was a reward. Of course, when you build a new stadium, you get the Super Bowl. That's pretty much the NFL deal. And so a lot of times we're seeing now they go to inside locations because now you know the weather's perfect. Now you know there's no weather concern. You know the game's going to happen. You're not worried about lightning delays. None of that stuff can happen. Snowstorms, any of that, because you're inside. And so being outside, being as Tampa, you know, there's a 70% chance of rain. Hopefully, like I said, the field doesn't get too muddy. Tampa obviously knows how to handle rain. They've been dealing with that outside. They've never had an indoor stadium. So they should be used to that. But other than that, there's no real weather concerns. Again, hopefully the field holds up. There is no other concerns during the game. You've got the weekend performing at halftime. You've got Miley Cyrus doing something before. You've got Jasmine Sullivan doing something. I think she's on National Anthem, if memory serves me correctly. And so this game is going to be an absolute show. Looking at it from KC's point of view, what do they need to do to win? They need to do what they've been doing. They've only lost one game in their last 27 or 28 games, and that was to the Las Vegas Raiders who they turned around and beat a few weeks later. This team is beating the Saints. This team is beating the Packers. This team is beating anybody who lined up against it for the last year and a half. They've knocked them all down. And so the Chiefs got to come out. They don't have to play a great game. That's the thing about Kansas City. They're so explosive that they can play bad for six plays out of a drive. On the seventh play, Tyreek Hills goes for 70, and he's in the end zone. Miko Hartman, who I didn't even mention when I listed players, can go for 65. Sammy Watkins can bust a big play. Travis Kelsey could get you 40, and now you went from, oh, man, it could be a three and out and give the Bucks a short field to worst comes to worst, we've at least flipped the field or scored a touchdown ourselves. Defensively, the Chiefs are going to have to get home on Brady. Tom Brady this year had a 38 passer rating against pressure. Now, all quarterbacks fold under pressure. I mean, that's the whole point of pressure. Uh, Rodgers, for a long time, had the rating record for QB under pressure. Russell Wilson's pretty good under pressure as well, but quarterbacks that aren't very mobile and Tom Brady in mobility should not be in the same sentence are not very good at pressure because they can't get out of the way. So Patrick Mahomes is a lot younger and a lot more mobile and has the ability, worst comes to worst, especially if he sees it coming, to run away from it and has the cannon arm to still get the ball anywhere on the field. But the Chiefs have to get home on Tom Brady. You cannot allow him to be able to sit back there and get comfortable. Now, the Chiefs have a pretty good secondary, especially in the playoffs. Spags dialed that secondary up. It's led by Ty Matthew, Bashar Breeland, Daniel Sorensen, that those guys can really lock down and clamp in. But when, you got, when you're guarding A.B., Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Gronk, Scotty Miller, it's hard to sit uh, – Keyshawn Johnson, I think is his name. It's hard to really sit there 
and just lock in man-to-man coverage if Brady's not under pressure. If he can just stand on his spot, because worst kind of worst, he'll dump off to a running back for six yards. So it's kind of a thing where you don't want to tire out your secondary if Frank Clark and Chris Jones and those guys don't get home. Now, Spags has known to send a blitz. Now, this is the same defensive coordinator that stopped Tom Brady the first time in New York. So he knows how to get to Brady. He's had pretty decent success against Brady. I believe he's two and three against him all time. So maybe he'll start sending home a little bit more blitzes. He blitzed a decent amount in the Week 12 matchup. And Brady was able to overcome it late. Ended up making it a game. And I believe had he gotten the ball back, the Bucs win the game. From an offensive perspective, if I'm the Chiefs, I literally say, I'm okay, we're not going to run the ball. We're just not going to run it. We're going to go full West. We're going to go full Big 12 air raid offense. If we run 65 plays, we're going to have 60 call passes because there's no point running the ball in this Bucks defense. They've got Vita Vea back, who we just discovered today, ran, played running back in high school, and his highlights are impressive. Look him up on IG Sports Center. You've got Ndamukong Sue, JPP, Shaq Barrett. The Chiefs are down their two best offensive tackles. And you've got Levante David and Devin White who want to thump. They want to come downhill. They are not extremely comfortable in coverage. And if they can see the run coming, they're going to come and thump whoever is running the ball. And you've got Jordan Whitehead if he plays. And you've got Antoine Winfield if he plays. But the backup safeties, as we saw in Green Bay, are also hitters. And they want to come downhill. So, if I'm the Chiefs, I just abandon the run. I don't even try it. I may run the occasional draw. I may run the occasional, like, reverse something. But in terms of traditional lining up single back or shotgun and handing the ball off, not about to happen. Because you've got two dual threat running backs anyway. You've got Le'Veon Bell. You've got Clyde Edwards-Alaire. So, you don't have to run the ball in the traditional sense of running the ball. Now, the air raid offense runs the ball, but they run the ball with quick slants, stop routes, smoke screens, screen passes, drag routes, quick slants, RPO reads. You can RPO people to death. That is something you can do. You can run the RPO, but that's what the air raid does a lot. They make sure that everything that their quote unquote runs are really three or four yard passes that can break. And so I would not call any traditional runs if it is a run it would be an rpo so that way you know Mahomes can sit up if those linebackers suck in too far hit a slant now tyree hill's running full speed with the ball on a slant route and so that is something definitely to watch for and that's what i would do if i was kansas city is that i wouldn't run the ball so that would be interesting i would assume if i'm kc that they're gonna double tyreek and they're gonna bracket kelsey all night I would just, because there's no reason not to. Yes, Miko Harmon is fast. He ain't Tyreek fast. Yes, Clyde Edwards-Alaire is dangerous. He's not Travis Kelsey with a middle dangerous. Yes, Sammy Watkins is a good receiver. He's neither one of those guys I've mentioned. And Andy Reid knows this. Eric Bieniemy knows this. So I know that he's probably having not two game plans, but kind of a game plan in half. Where, okay, if we come out and their first five pass plays we call, Tyreek's doubled on every pass play and Kelsey's bracketed on every pass play, now we know we have to start creating or calling plays for Miko, calling plays for Clyde Edwards-Elaire, calling plays for Sammy Watkins to get those guys open and just run Tyreek out the play or run Kelsey on the out route and pull two defenders with him. So that is something that definitely I would look for if I was KC.
Now, from the Bucks' perspective, I would definitely start off with we're going to double Tyreek Hill and bracket Travis Kelsey the whole night. There's no way I'm going to let Tyreek Hill go for 203 yards in the first quarter like he did in Week 12. There's no way I'm going to let Travis Kelsey have 10 or 11 catches, nine of them for first downs, because he just breaks our back on six or seven third downs when we think we're off the field. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Now, if Miko Hartman and Sammy Watkins and Clyde Edwards-Elaire help Patrick Mahomes basically to three touchdowns, four touchdowns, and they beat us, I just go out to the middle of the field. Hell of a team you got over there, Andy Reid. Good job, and we'll see you next year. I don't know how you allow Tyreek Hill to go one-on-one. I don't know how you let Travis Kelsey go one-on-one. Like I said, all night, they're going to see two people. Now, what that means is that puts everybody else in ISO single coverage. I mean, that's what it does. It puts everybody else in man, and you've got Andy Reid, so I'm sure they're going to get points off of it. But I'm not about to let Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey have a field day. Not about to happen. Mm -mm. 10 and 87 are not about to get off. Now, conversely, just like I said about the Chiefs, you have to make Patrick Mahomes get off his spot. But the catch-22 is you have to do it with four. So that's always been a trick with Brady is to knock him off his spot with four. So the Chiefs can send four, maybe five, and not compromise their back in too much because Brady can't move. Patrick Mahomes, however, is very good at moving. He's a very He's not Kyler Murray. He's not Lamar Jackson. He's not Josh Allen. But he can move. And so when you got a quarterback that is mobile, you can't send six or seven because if he slips out the back door, he's gone. Plus, if you send too many of them, that takes away your that takes away somebody from getting doubled. So you send five, okay, you might get away with a double. You send six, you might double one person, but then everybody else is zero coverage. There's no safety help anywhere. And so with that being said, I would send four, maybe five. At Patrick Mahomes, but I would have them almost mush rushing. You almost want to keep him in the pocket, similar to what they would do to Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, these great ad-libbing quarterbacks, Russell Wilson. You almost want them standing in the pocket with nowhere to go and nowhere to throw. So if you can put a mush rush on, make sure all the run lanes are filled in terms of the scramble routes and scramble lanes, and then you have, you know, seven back in coverage or six back in coverage with somebody being double teamed. And keep him with nowhere to go and nowhere to throw. That would be a situation where the Bucks should feel very comfortable in, a, in that spot. Now, what that does, however, is it puts one of your downhill linebackers in a coverage situation. So whether that be Devin White, whether that be Levante David, it keeps the one of them from just coming downhill and obliterating uh, all the Chiefs' efforts and the Chiefs' plans. If I'm the Bucks' offense. I look for the quick game because that Chiefs secondary is going to try and jump a lot of routes early. Completely understand that. But you have to figure out, okay, we have a new guard in the game. We have to figure out how well he can hand up, stand up to Chris Jones. Because I know that Spag is going to put Chris Jones over that new Tampa guard. So we have a new guard in the game. We need to figure out how that guard is going to stand up to Chris Jones. Now, if he can stand up, worse, Iris has been a man all year as a rookie. Donovan Smith has been playing well. Ali Marpe has been playing well. So uh, Jensen, the center, has been playing well. So if you can get time for Tom to sit back there and play, then by all means, open the pass game up because you're going to have to get vertical to win this game. 
the Chiefs are not about to allow you to play ball control offense and win. Because one mistake, you go from 14-7, maybe, or 14-14, then now you get a field goal and you three and out it, or you six and out it, whatever. It's 14-3 instead of a possibility of you going for it and you may, you know, 14-10, something like that, you're in a bad position. So, with that being said, they're going to have to, in my opinion, get that pass rush off that guard by running different block combinations and running 0-1 traps and running stuff where the offensive lineman, that guard specifically, is doing a lot of pulling action, doing a lot of moving action, run some zone blocking schemes because you cannot allow Chris Jones to just tee off on him one-on-one straight up. Also, I would have a lot of the offensive linemen doubling him, doubling Chris Jones to make sure he doesn't wreck your game and leave the rest of the offensive linemen one-on-one. So I would definitely do that. I would have a lot of bunch formations because you have to keep Tyron Matthew guessing. So if Tyron Matthew is allowed to sit in the middle of the field and roam, he's going to take away the middle of the field by himself. He's a very smart player. He's one of the most instinctual players in the league. And so you've got to counteract him by giving him a bunch of information at once. Make him think, because if it's a bunch situation, he has to go to somebody. He can't just sit in the middle of the field and wait. You know, if it's, if it's doubles, he can just wait on somebody to cross the middle of the field and take it away. If it's a bunch situation, whether it be three bunch, whether it be a four people bunch, if that is a situation, he has to give He's supposed to process a lot of information quickly, and by that means he does he can't just sit on everybody. He has to pick somebody, whoever he picks to roll and rob away, basically. He is leaving somebody else single coverage or any way away from him. Because Time Matthews is an absolute ball hawk, and you do not want him to wreck your game if you're Tampa. Offensively, continuing on that conversation, you have to run the ball. Complete opposite of Kansas City. If I'm Kansas City, I don't even think about running the ball. I don't even consider it unless it's RPO. There is no way I, I call a straight-up run play unless it's an RPO or a draw because you're not going to get through that Tampa defense. As for Tampa, you run the ball because that set up your play action. Again, you have to feed time after information. That makes Chris Jones and Frank Clark not always in pass rush mode. And we've seen when Tampa has gone bombs away, no risk it, no biscuit, they lost. They struggled. Obviously, last year they were seven and nine. They got blown out by New Orleans twice. They lost a couple of other games because they went no risk it, no biscuit, and got their teeth kicked in. So they need to not do that anymore. They need to run the ball. I want Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette to have a combined thirty touches. Now, whether that is thirty runs, whether that's fifteen and fifteen, whether that is you know where it's thirty quote unquote runs, where it's 20 handoffs and five swing passes and five little quick little outruns, you know, something where the running backs are definitely involved about 30 times in the game. You're going to get about 65 plays. So 30 times Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette needs to have their hands on the ball. And so if you're Tampa, you've got to alleviate that pass rush. Like I said, you have a new guard. You're not into the bad offensive line position as the Chiefs, but you definitely need to alleviate the pass rush if you're Tampa. Now, the point spread right now for the game is holding at Chiefs minus three. I would pick the Bucks to cover that. I, For some reason, I am going to go with the Bucks here. Now, if you look at Pro Football Focus, the Bucks are the better team. Now, the Pro Football Focus ranking is a little BS. It's a little crappy. But taking their rankings 
in the top five, the Chiefs have four of the players. They have Patrick Mahomes, they have Tyreek Hill, they have Chris Jones, they have Travis Kelsey. Tom Brady is the lone buck, and he comes in at number two. However, players six through 15 are all but exclusively Bucks players, sans Tyron Matthew being the lone exception for the Chiefs. So in the top 15, it's 10 to five Bucks. Now, again, the rank is a little crap because Devin White's like gonna play a 30, which is abhorrently ridiculous. He's, in my opinion, the second or third best defensive player in this game. And he's ranked 30 is mind boggling. I mean, they rank him 30 because they say he roams a lot. He gets caught out of position and da 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 da. Yeah, they, he's one. He's the second or third best defensive player in this game, and he's a lot higher than 30. Pro Football Focus. However, looking at that ranking, the Bucks have the deeper team. Now, could Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill star power? The Chiefs to victory? Absolutely. We've seen it in week, in the Week 12 matchup. Tyreek Hill had 203 yards in the first quarter, and the game felt over. Now Brady made it hella interesting. He made it incredibly interesting late, but during the game felt over. You're 17-0. It's, it's a wrap. And so that is going to be a concern, obviously, for betters, but I am going to go with the Bucks in this situation. I can't bet against Brady can't i'm sorry I, i've and i've done it all playoffs i've rode with brady I he's gonna beat washington i said he's gonna beat new orleans he's gonna beat green bay a lot of people were betting on green bay i'm gonna go with brady here i'm gonna go with the bucks to actually win this game and i'm gonna go with the bucks against the spread obviously like i said super cool parlay trick if you're gonna pick the underdog might as well pick the point spread in the parlay because Want the, he has to cover the points if he's going if the team is going to win the game. So I am gonna go with the Bucks to win the game flat out, along with covering obviously the point spread. Now just little stadium news: the Bucks are not allowed to fire the cannons. Now they will be going off apparently pregame uh, in a traditional Super Bowl celebration thing. So mixed in with the fireworks, the cannons will be firing. Um, there will be 25,000 fans, including a bunch of vaccinated healthcare workers. So thank you guys for that. There will be 35,000 cutouts. And so it will look a lot more full than a normal capacity. And we've seen this year, man, 25,000 fans. That's about what Jerry World's allowing, which will be the, one of the most fans we've seen in the stadium this season. They can make some noise. We've seen Bills Mafia make a lot of noise. We had Green Bay make a lot of noise. Obviously, Jerry was making noise with their 25,000. And so just those little amount of fans could really make a difference. But yeah, I'm going to go with the Bucks here. I'm thinking if I had to pick a score, 34-31, Ryan Suckup walks it off. A lot of Brady's games end with a walk-off field goal. Ask Adam Vinatieri, ask Steven Guskowski. Add Ryan Suckup to the list of walk-off guys to kick Tom Brady into another Super Bowl and the GOAT walks out with number seven. We're going to talk about all the implications and the fallout from the game. We're even going to throw in a mock draft next week. So that is going to be very interesting. Now, just little news. You know, you know, I love news. Matt Stafford and Jared Goff, that trade was insane. Um, the fallout still happening from that. We've got a lot of QB movement off of that trade. Now that's happened. You've got Deshaun Watson, who still wants out, removing all mention of the Houston Texans from his bio. He still wants to go. 
You've got Houston Brass saying it's not happening. You've got Brett Favre saying that, you know, you get paid a lot of money that you should stick it out, basically. That's crap advice. You've got a lot of players, a la Stephon Diggs, saying that, no, like, you need to do what's best for you. You need to get out of a situation that's not working for you because you have a very limited career. You have a very limited shelf life. Kyle McNair will always own the Texans as long as he wants to own the Texans. It appears that Jack Easterby will always have a lot of power in Houston as long as he wants that power in Houston. Deshaun Watson, body breaks down. He gets Andrew Lux, and now he's out of the league at 29, 30 years old, and we're looking like, man, he has so much talent, but the organization failed him. So Deshaun Watson, I am fully supporting and trying to get out of Houston. One of the destinations he may land has become the Las Vegas Raiders. It's been widely speculated, widely reported that John Gruden and Derek Carr are not a fit. They like each other, but they're not a fit. John Gruden is, you know, he's Chucky. He's got the mean streak. He curses. He is just an angry little guy sometimes. And Derek Carr is, you know, he's very Christian faith. He's very non-confrontational. And they just don't fit in terms of... They are yin and yang. They're ice and fire. It just it doesn't work. And Gruden and Carr was never been a great fit. And so Deshaun Watson could be a place that lands in Vegas. Now, if he gets to Vegas and they can keep a hold of most of the team. So if I was Vegas, I would be trading draft picks. I wouldn't be looking to trade, you know, a lot of players because you need Josh Jacobs. You need Dan Waller. You don't have a defense and you really don't have a good offensive line. But you'd be willing to move off a Nelson Aguilar. You'd be willing to move off a Derek Carr. You'd be willing to move off a couple of first-round picks. Uh, not this year. You know, the picks start next year. You get a first-round pick next year. You give a couple seconds to throw in a third and make the deal happen. If I am Vegas, because that would be huge. Now you immediately have the second-best quarterback in the division. And you've got Darren Waller. And you've got Josh Jacobs. And you can use your first-round pick this year on an offensive lineman. Maybe even pack his picks and fly up in the draft, see if you can get a Panay Soul and really change around your offensive line. Plus, you're going to have money and you're in free agency and you're in Vegas. So there's a lot of different things that the Vegas Raiders could go if they land Deshaun Watson. So that is something we're definitely going to watch. I am so excited for this Super Bowl. I cannot wait again. I'm going to go with the Bucks, 34-31, because I just can't bet against Brady. He's, he's got that look in his eyes. He's got that fire. He's already talking about they're going to be so much better next year. So he's definitely coming back. And I cannot wait until this game. I'm so excited. But up next, we're going to shift to the NBA and talk about what's going down in the association. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to talk about the NBA and what's going on in the association. So, of course, as always, let's take a peek at the standings. You got the Philadelphia 76ers at one, followed by the Milwaukee Bucks, the Brooklyn Nets, the Boston Celtics, the Indiana Pacers, the Charlotte Hornets, the Atlanta Hawks, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the New York Knicks, and the Toronto Raptors are in at 10. For the Eastern Conference, remember, all of these teams will either qualify for the playoffs outright or be eligible for the play-in tournament for the right to get into the playoffs. Now, out west, 
We've got the Utah Jazz, the Los Angeles Clippers, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Denver Nuggets, the Portland Trailblazers, the Phoenix Suns, the Warriors, the San Antonio Spurs, the Memphis Grizzlies, and the Houston Rockets coming in at 10. So, as usual, there's a lot of movement in the West nightly. I mean, even games that don't involve teams that played, all of a sudden, the standings are switched around by the morning because some tiebreaker triggers over here that triggers over there. It is absolute insanity out West. Um, Denver and the Lakers played last night, and that moved four teams around in the standings, and neither one of them, none of the teams that moved were the Lakers or Denver. And so that is going to be a crazy race all year out West. And so we're definitely keeping our eyes on that. Um, Joel Embiid right now is my league MVP. Look, I know I had Luka before the season started. That was honestly the betting favorite as well. But the Dallas Mavericks are an abhorrent disaster right now. Currently at basketball, I mean, they can't win a game. They got smacked by 30 by the Warriors last night. A short-handed Warriors, including allowing Kelly Oubre to have his career high of 40. And so the Dallas Mavericks are probably not going to be anywhere even in playing contention and with that being said lucas has obviously no chance to win the mvp and so right now my mvp of the league would be joel Embiid. he's absolutely dominating he had a 25 point quarter after hurting his ankle last night or yesterday rather and so when you've got joel Embiid dominating like that they didn't even have ben simmons now they lost the game um the blazers came out hot they played well carmelo anthony anthony simons they played great, but Joel Embiid absolutely dominated that game. Now, All-Star break is looking like they're going to be early March. Now, the NBA and the MBPA is negotiating in terms of having the All-Star game. So, it's looking like they're going to have it. Looking like it's going to be in Atlanta. And several stars are speaking out against the having the game. Um... They don't mind having, you know, the all-star distinctions, whatever. But they were looking, really looking forward to the break. Uh, De'Aaron Fox called it stupid. He said that basically, you know, basically along the lines of we're barely getting through the season as is. So now you're going to pull all these guys together and you're going to have this environment. You're going to have an all-star game with no fans. It's just going to be looking weird. And then you've got LeBron James who said that he was really looking forward to the five or six days off because... They didn't. They had a seventy-two-day turnaround. He's able to fast turnaround. He gave his time body to rest. He could rest at home, you know, really recover, get his body right for the second half of the season. And having those five or six days would greatly help him. And he said he'd go to the All-Star game. He'd be there physically, but he wouldn't be there mentally. So I'm sure a guy like LeBron is in full recovery mode. You know, any media obligation he has, he's gonna do it from his hotel room anyway or a Zoom. And so he'll be recovering all the whole while, and then he'll play in the game 20, 30 minutes, and then he won't play too long. So I wonder if the NBA will take that into consideration. When it comes down to a guy like LeBron, when LeBron speaks, the league listens. Uh, that's the reason we have the week-long All-Star break. It usually was All-Star weekend. you know. So the festivities started Thursday. They ended on Sunday, and games were being played by Monday night. I mean, that was not too many years ago that was the case. Uh, LeBron James fought with Adam Silver and got it to be a week. So, you know, Wednesday to Wednesday, pretty much. Uh, everybody converges on whatever the city for All-Star Weekend is that Wednesday. And you have, obviously, the festivities start that Thursday. You have certain events Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is the game. And then you still have Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday 
sometimes even Thursday, depending on how your schedule falls, to rest and recuperate and get ready for the second half of the season. So guys like LeBron was really looking forward to that short uh, that short break because of the fast turnaround. You've got Jimmy Butler, who's probably going to be an all-star. He had a fast turnaround. Anthony Davis. I mean, even guys like Steph Curry had a fast ramp-up. So, yes, Steph didn't make the bubble and know the Warriors really didn't play an official game until March, or since March, rather. But they all of a sudden has, oh, we're going to have a season on this date, and it's three weeks away. It's four weeks away. So now you've got to ramp up your body like you had a short offseason. Instead of getting traditional, okay, I got eight weeks to really get going. I've got four weeks to really get going. So that is something definitely to watch out for, how the All-Star game is going to look this year. Because, yes, guys are going to play. If they have the game, LeBron's not going to flake on the All-Star game. He knows he matters too much to the league, and the league would have a holy hell fit if he decided to try and flake on the game. But is it going to be one of those youth movement games where guys who are young and trying to build a name, uh, look at a Jalen Brown, might go crazy in that game because he's young trying to build a game. Bradley Beal would go off in that in that kind of environment. You look at a guy uh, before his injury, a Christian Wood, who may get in off the bench, that has a great game. You look at a situation, you know, guys who are younger that are like Brandon Ingram if he gets in, Zion Williamson if he gets in, John Morant, these guys will just play because the vets, Kevin Durant, who's played a couple 50-minute games already, how hard is he going to play? You know James Harden has a weight problem anyway, although it's coming down, he is in the process of trying to get his body back together. How well, how hard is he going to play? I already spoke about LeBron. And so you've got guys like that pretty much anti the game including guys like De'Aaron Fox I don't know how you're going to have a quote-unquote successful all-star game especially after last all-star game with the Elam ending with you know being on of Kobe and Gianna anything of that nature with some of the iconic shots we have coming out of that game and uh, by shots I mean pictures we have coming out of that game I don't know how you play this one when De'Aaron Fox of the world, the LeBron James of the world, and I'm sure others will come out in the next few days against the proposal and against the idea of even having the game in general. So that'll definitely be something to watch out for in the NBA as they move to getting an all-star weekend. Because the plan would be to have everything in one night. You would do the skills competitions and the game basically in one night. So the skill competitions lead right into the game. So slam dunk, three-point, Skills challenge, probably, what, 30-minute break, and then game. So that'll be something definitely to look out for there. Uh, Christian Wood suffered a badly turned ankle. Uh, The Rockets don't know how long he will be out. He was my current pick for most improved player because he was absolutely playing out of his mind. And his numbers were actually very similar to Anthony Davis. So he was playing, having a great season. Hopefully his injury is not nearly as bad as it looked. Uh, His teammates wouldn't even allow him to shoot the free throws last night after the foul that caused the ankle injury. And so he had to be wheelchair out of the arena. Like I said, hopefully it's something where you're looking at, you know, we get news it's three to five weeks and it's not six to eight weeks. It's not two to three months. So hopefully we get good news on Christian Wood. Um, the Lakers are, well, the Lakers, 
they are definitely still my favorites to win the whole thing, to win the NBA championship. And last night they had a contender in the building. And even though the Lakers have been four and four, I believe, at home entering last night, they were down 12 at one point, ended up winning by 21. They turned it on, and Denver had no answer. They had no way of contending against the Lakers' onslaught. LeBron James made history by passing Wilt Chamberlain for the third most made field goals in NBA history. He had his 825-point game, which is the most in NBA history. He also had a triple-double last night, 27-10-10. and 10. And a lot of guys contributed. Dennis Schroeder with his hustle. Taylor Horton Tucker off the bench. Anthony Davis played decent. And so when you've got a group like that, the Lakers are just trying to get their rhythm, trying to get their flow. And once they get that, that will be a scary sight for the rest of the NBA. Paul George should also be in the MVP discussion. Now, we talk a lot about Paul George. He was the easiest target in sports after the bubble. Way off P. Pandemic P. George, Paul, and the words of Skip Bayless, he had a lot of nicknames. None were flattering. And so he's come out this year. He said it on all the smoke, Stephen Jackson and Matt Barnes, that he was going to, people going to have to pay this year. People are going to have to deal with him this year. He was finally healthy after his two shoulder surgeries following the MVP year, which he finished, or almost MVP year, in which he finished third in MVP voting. He said people going to have to pay this year. He was mentally there. He was back with his old trainer. He was getting back to the playoff P or the Paul George that we were used to seeing, you know, PG-24 when he was, a PG-13 rather, when he was in Indiana. You had a guy that was a dominant two-way player. And so now we're looking at a all-time level Paul George. He's shooting nearly 50% from three, shooting about 47% from three. He's shooting a little over 50% from the field, and he's shooting a hair over 90% from the free throw line. He's absolutely insane right now. He just hit up the cast for eight of nine from three. He is flamethrowing at the moment. And so Paul George looks like he is one of those guys that is ready to take over. And he's playing better than Kawhi Leonard at the moment. He's absolutely playing better than Kawhi. And he's showing that he is right now the best player on the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, could Kawhi be low managing without low managing? Absolutely. We've heard superstars admit this all the time that they find little spots on the court to rest. They'll take a game where they played 32 minutes, but they were only active for 16 of them. You know, that the rest of the time they stood around, watched a lot, and was just on the floor to be on the floor. And so right now, Paul George is taking it very personally. But unfortunately for Paul, he has to go do it in the playoffs. No one cares about the regular season anymore. And his insults came not because he was, you know, a regular season P. He was playoff P. And he hit the side of the backboard and he flat out choked down the stretch of all the Denver games. And so when you have that reputation now, you've got to go do it in the postseason. No one cares about the regular season anymore. And so that'll be something definitely to watch there. And quick shout out to Toronto Raptors guard Fred Van Vliet for scoring 54 points. The most points by undrafted player ever passing Moses Malone, who I believe has 10 through 30 or 2 through 30 rather in terms of that ranking and Fred Van Vliet now holds the record with 54 points he made 11 threes and I also believe that the Toronto Raptors single game scoring record um DeMar DeRozan poked a little fun saying that old man Kyle as in Kyle Lowry couldn't go break the record and so Fred Van Vliet did it instead 
So congratulations to Fred Van Vliet. His story is incredibly inspiring. Uh, there's, you know, the video of him having to tell people at his draft party. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. Sorry, you guys, for coming out. It's not going to happen tonight. Uh, then he got signed. Then he signed the largest deal for an undrafted free agent player ever. And now he has the record for the most points by undrafted player ever, along with the Toronto Raptors single game record. So that is definitely something to be inspired about. And I am so happy for Fred Van Vliet, who's just a good guy. You always see him around his kids. He was like the happiest guy on planet Earth when families were allowed in a bubble because he got to see his wife and his kids. So congratulations to Fred Van Vliet. Plus, he looks a little like Drake. So there's advantages all over the place. But up next, we will be shifting to the NCAA and what happened and what finished on National Signing Day. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to look at some college football. So obviously college football ended with Nick Saban claiming his seventh national championship most of all time. And I made the speculation, perhaps foolishly, or the hypothesis that he enjoyed this one a little bit more openly than normal. You know, normally Nick Saban is couple smiles on to tomorrow you know he always says like 24 hour rule we enjoy it for 24 hours and then we get back to work and it felt like he was enjoying it you more you know you see more you seen tears you seen him getting emotional hugging players and he spoke about it after the game that this group was really really special this senior class because they all came back you know devonta smith could have been a first round pick last season he came back you look at Najee harris could have been a top 40 overall prospect he came back it was a couple offensive linemen that came back a couple of defensive players that came back he said it was it was very he said this group was special to him because they had unfinished business they wanted to come back now that same class had already won remember Tua Tua should have been in that class remember he threw the past in the Georgia National Championship game to who Devonta Smith so that group already had a national championship they already achieved the rule of every recruiting class Nick Saban signs that Bama wins they already had that so they came back though they said for unfinished business because only really Devonta Smith and should have been Tua were the only people in that class to contribute to the championship game truly and totally Devonta caught the touchdown obviously but he wasn't the best receiver on the team Tua wasn't even a starter he comes in at halftime you know so those guys came back to go get one of their own basically and so I made the hypothesis, like I said, the theory, that Nick Saban may be, you know, peering around the corner at retirement. Maybe he's peering around like, man, I was at home for those couple of weeks and that wasn't too bad. The couch was nice and comfortable. And I was wrong. Um, Nick Saban and Alabama have signed the greatest recruiting class in the history of recruiting rankings based on rankings. Their composite score of all their players was the greatest ever in a single college recruiting cycle. And like I said, they had done a top five all-time class by the end of early signing period. And then on signing day, they locked in another five-star player and they made and they're in the running for another five-star player who may not, you know, sign until April. Uh, so it could be a situation where they could lock in another five-star player as well and push their greatest record of all time even further out. But Alabama and Nick Saban have signed the greatest recruiting class of all time. 
that is absolutely insane. Fresh off a national championship with a five-star quarterback coming in next year or starting, predicted to start next year. The machine just keeps on machining, honestly. Now, I mean, you saw a taste of their talent in the championship game. You saw, you know, now Waddle's gone, obviously. Devonta Smith is gone, obviously. But you saw a taste of their talent. The backup running back came in. He did great. They had a slide receiver catch a big pass. The tight end did well. The defense is young. They play well. Bama's going to keep the machine going. So, I, like I said, foolishly couldn't thought that he was going to walk away. And it turned out I was wrong. But if you look at the recruiting rankings, listen to the names in this rankings. Alabama 1, Ohio State 2, Georgia 3, LSU 4. After their terrible season, they went 5-5. Five and five. They actually have the worst record out of anybody in the top 10. I believe Michigan may have also won five games. But uh, LSU, after their terrible season, 5-5, five and five, did not affect recruiting all that much because they finished with a top five class. But LSU at four, Clemson at five, Oregon six, AM seven, USC eight, and Notre Dame nine, Michigan ten. Who was in the college football playoff? The number one team, the number two team, the number five team, and the number nine team in recruiting. Now, Notre Dame has the advantage of they play an independent schedule. And so they don't really have to go through the gauntlet of a conference. Now, they went through the ACC this year, but let's be honest, people, they don't get to the college football playoff if Trevor Lawrence plays the first time and DJ Ugalagale almost beat him the first time. So if Trevor Lawrence plays, they don't win the game in South Bend and then they lose the game in, game in Charlotte. They don't get in the playoff and him gets in, which would mean the seventh ranked team would also have been in the playoff. So, hey, but... That's water under the bridge now because the number one team in Bama made the playoffs. If I had to guess the playoff teams for next year, if they don't expand to eight, let's say they go to four, I would say it'd be Bama, Ohio State, and their respective conferences. LSU may get an at-large bid because I think the only game they might lose on their schedule is to Bama, and that is a maybe, and then Clemson. And if you know if LSU doesn't at-large their way in, Oregon or USC comes out of the Pac-12. That's basically how I'm looking at it. And so you look at, now if you go to an expansion, I think the whole top eight gets in. Maybe Notre Dame takes USC spot and maybe they don't put in, you know, three SEC schools or four SEC schools rather. You know, maybe Notre Dame takes one of their spots. But for the most part, that's pretty much going to be the ranking. And in Oklahoma, obviously Oklahoma. Um, When it comes down to college football, we try to make all these exceptions in the media. You know, loves doing that. Oh, let's try and get Coastal Carolina in the playoff. Let's try and get BYU in the playoff. Why? They would get a run off the field by 70. Now do I now do I believe that they should do something for the power for the non for the group of five, sorry, schools? The non-power five schools like the Mac, stuff like that. Yes, absolutely. Do I think they should have a 18 quote-unquote playoff? Absolutely. Now, they get probably more money from bowl games than they would a playoff of their own. So, you know, the college football playoff is played through the bowl system. The group of five can do the same thing. So they can play through the bowl system. You know, they still go to different bowls, and then they'll just play the group of five championship outside of the bowl games. But I assume they would get more money through playing a bowl game anyway. So, 
that is a situation where they're gonna have to look at when it, when whenever they expand to eight. Do we want a one-loss Coastal Carolina or a one-loss BYU as the eight seed when we know for a fact that two-loss Michigan is better than that one-loss team? So I, I don't know how they're gonna handle that situation, but the recruiting numbers bear it out. Those are the best teams in the country. Like I said, Oklahoma, shockingly, is not in the top 10. Uh, Michigan jumped them actually rather late to get into number 10. Harbaugh puts together another class amid all his rumors of going to the NFL and possibly not even being there. He puts together a top 10 class. Like I said, LSU, off their worst season in over a decade, plus maybe two decades, they pull together a great class, number four. You look at Georgia, who's perpetually disappointing. They pulled together the number three class. Oregon, who did not have a great year at all. They pulled together a top 10 class. USC did not have, they had a good year, but of course they went about a title threat. They pulled together a number eight ranked class, including a five-star defensive end that was hot on the trail for several schools like Clemson and LSU. And so USC, you got LSU, you look at Oregon, you know, A&M parlayed their success into a seventh ranked class. And so it's going to be a very good college football season, which is going to be a little over 200 days away. And so we will definitely be keeping an eye on that. But up next, we're going to shift to a little Major League Baseball and talk about what's going down there as we may be getting a deja vu of last season. And we are back. And now we're going to talk about Major League Baseball being, well, Major League Baseball. I ranted on Major League Baseball last week about their Hall of Fame situation because that's just ridiculous. There's no way you should have a Hall of Fame induction or voting with nobody getting in. I'm not even going to go down that path again before I get frustrated at Major League Baseball again for that situation. I'm not even going to do that. What I am going to do, however, is have a gripe this time with ownership and baseball players. You know, the people that actually matter to the game. They are in negotiations of a start point of a negotiation, a, you know, do you want to push the season back? If the season gets pushed back, are games lost? If games are lost, how much salary do we get? If salaries lost, is it escrowed? Is it promised a later date? Is it a percentage of what we're supposed to get? We're doing this again. Again, bring it all back around from last year. Now, the good news about this negotiation is it looks like that they're not pushing the season back, that they're going to attempt to play the season as originally scheduled, full 182 or 162 rather, and play the season. I am very happy about that. I prefer that. That way, if there is a negotiation of salary loss, it is very fair on both sides you're negotiating five out of percentage of pay so last negotiation was okay we're gonna have a reduced schedule now how much of the reduction are we gonna reduce further so if you were going to say hey guys you know we're only gonna play 100 games out of 162 so we're gonna need some of that money back on the contract in terms of if you were to do you know 100 million dollars you're only going to, if you were to do $40 million, for instance, you're only going to get 25 Players could somewhat understand that. 
they will to work with the strongest union in sports which would be the major league players union they'd be willing to work with that because i mean it's fair the players wouldn't love it but in theory it's fair you have less games on the schedule we pay you effectively per game so we're going to bring that down to match it the issue arose when they said okay so we got that number now we're going to want to take more of your money because of the loss we're going to have in revenue that's when all hell broke loose and that's negotiations went south this negotiation seems to be okay we're not going to do the whole escrow payment thing we're going to either do the negotiation straight up for reduced games and reduced salaries or we're going to play the season attempt to play the season as originally scheduled so baseball baseball all you got to do is say hey we're going to play 120 games and you're going to get 83 percent of your salary great that works game for game or we're gonna play 162 and you're gonna get paid the full amount. Perfect, that works for all the players, all the fans, all that. We're gonna play 162 and we're only gonna pay you guys for 75% of it to make up for losses of revenue due to fans and other means of financial losses that the owners will incur by not having fans in the stands. Even though some, st some states are allowing fans in stands such as Texas, Florida, stuff like that. Great, perfect, spectacular. I don't want a repeat of the last negotiations where it is we're negotiating three different things at once. We're negotiating a start time, a season length, and a pay. Because when you're negotiating that many things at one time, one piece of it throws off the entire negotiations. So, okay, let's say we got the start date down. We're going to start June 1st. Great, spectacular. Okay, we're going to play 80 games, but we're going to pay you basically for 60. Okay, now it's a problem. Because I was thinking, you know, from a player side, we can get 100 games in and get paid for 100 games. So now you're negotiating too many things. There's too many variables. So the fact that they're only negotiating basically right now on two fronts, and if those two fronts align, then they open the door for a third front, is a lot better of a negotiation strategy. So kudos to Major League Baseball and the Players Association for rectifying that. So congratulations to them. And congratulations to baseball on trying to learn from their mistakes of last season. So kudos to them. But up next, we're going to have our best for last, which is going to be shifting back to the Super Bowl. And we're going to talk about some of the amazing diversity that is going to be showcased in multiple fronts on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, welcome in everybody to best for last which will be a talk on the diversity like i said that is going on in super bowl sunday and on super bowl sunday rather now like i said you've got Miley Cyrus performing you've got jasmine sullivan doing the national anthem who's a black woman you've got a black halftime performer in the weekend but then you go on to the nfl itself which is a problem that diversity is not is a problem in the NFL. So the problem it's a problem in major sports in terms of leadership positions. Um, it appears that the rule around the world is that uh, the black athlete can play, but the black person cannot lead. The woman cannot lead in certain aspects. And so kudos to both teams and both organizations and the league itself for having diversity on the forefront of the game. For instance, the Brute Tampa Bay Buccaneers. 
Bruce Arians is coaching the game as the head coach, but his offensive coordinator, special teams coordinator, assistant head coach, and defensive coordinator are all African-American. You look at Kansas City, Airbnb, his top is the top assistant in Kansas City. He's African-American as well. You've got um, women referees happening in this game. She's the first woman ever to referee a game. You look at the multiple positions of power that are happening in this game. You've got women on both coaching staffs. It is a very good, I mean, let's be honest, it's a very good look for the NFL. The fact that they are going out of their way to promote diversity. The fact that they're trying to come up to the 21st century into 2020. The fact that, you know, guys look at situations like young people look at situations like, hey, I want to be an NFL coach. I'm looking at, you know, Tampa has all black assistants in the top positions. I'm looking at the offense coordinator for the Chiefs is also a black man. And that is huge. I mean, even look at Washington football team promoting Jennifer King, I believe it's her name. Excuse me if it's wrong. Um, promoting her to the first full-time African-American female assistant coach in the NFL. So you look at that around the league. Uh, this is happening more and more because, let's be honest, man, if you know football, you know football. It doesn't matter if you're tall, short, dark, black, white, female, male, and other. You know ball, you know ball. And that's just period. So because it's not a situation where it's playing, you know, honestly, I, I don't think there'll be a female player in the NFL. Uh, just the physical demanding nature is a little rough. It's a little hard on the human body. Uh, but in terms of coaching, I mean, you know, football, you know, football, you know, you know, basketball, you know, basketball. If I'm so proud of Becky Hammond and the San Antonio Spurs organization for promoting her. And she's always in charge and probably gets thrown out and stuff like that. So I'm super proud of her in the, in the NBA. Uh, so I am so thankful for the NFL like I said earlier for making this season happen for even ensuring that this was a thing and now you look at two organizations who are deservingly of talent and of character it appears by highlighting the diversity the league is highlighting diversity of this game and this is going to be huge the messages in the end zone the messages on the back of the helmet talking about it during interviews and stuff like that so this is going to be a great game a definite treat and a reward for the NFL and football fans everywhere. Uh, again, I have the Bucks winning 34-31. Honey Ryan suck up field goal as a walk-off. And this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Remember, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And follow the Twitter page at Daytime Sports. But now I am officially signing out. Hope you guys have a great day.